Welcome, listeners, to Episode 17 of the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast. I'm your host, Becky Lewis, and I'm joined today with my colleague and co-host for the month, Brittany Fike. Today, we are talking about culturally responsive education while focusing on school reentry. Welcome to the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast, where we engage in educational conversations to strengthen early literacy in West Virginia. Are you ready to become a leader of literacy? Hello, listeners. Welcome to our episode today. I'm really excited to be welcoming back on as my co-host for the month, Brittany Fike. Brittany, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Becky. I'm happy to be joining you for another episode of our podcast. Brittany, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a huge impact on the education world and brought to light many issues and challenges that are not only prevalent during this difficult time, but are present during what we call normal times. And one topic in particular that's received a lot of attention is educational inequities. And... I believe that educational inequities have become such a hot topic in today's world because they've been exacerbated by the pandemic. Seeing these inequities in a more pronounced manner due to school closures and remote learning has led many people to developing blog posts, articles, and guidance documents to help overcome these inequities, not only in remote learning situations, but also during typical times as well. Yes. And, you know, as a part of the campaign for grade level reading and the work that we do, we've always been aware of academic and social inequities. And our mission is to help close the achievement gap for economically disadvantaged children. But recently, there has been so much more information brought to light that we haven't really touched upon. And a lot of that information is focused on how we can overcome social racial, cultural, as well as those economic inequities as we move forward, especially in this unique time as we plan for school reentry. Yes, Brittany. There are a lot of subtopics under educational inequities. And for today's conversation, I wanted to focus on one that I feel is often misunderstood or overlooked, and that is culturally responsive education. What we mean when we say culturally responsive education is we mean that we're bringing elements into our instruction that helps students to become independent learners. This is done by focusing on improving the learning capacities of students who have been educationally marginalized due to historical inequities in our school systems, then centering our instruction around both the affective and cognitive aspects of teaching and learning while also building cognitive capacity and academic mindset by pushing back on dominant narratives about people of color. Now, in this explanation, I used the words educationally marginalized, and I just wanna take a minute to address that. This does not only refer to our students who are ethnically different, which we typically think of when we hear the words culturally responsive and educationally marginalized, but we're also talking about those students who come from different socioeconomic statuses than ourselves, who speak different languages, those who are from different communities like 
the LGBTQ community, or even just a community outside of our local home community. And this is also children who experience homelessness and foster care. So we have a lot of students here in West Virginia who are in foster care. So we need to keep them at the forefront of our mind when we say educationally marginalized and we're talking about culturally responsive education. Yes, and you are absolutely correct. Going back to what you just mentioned about the different types of students who are considered marginalized, it's important that we recognize that even here in West Virginia, a state that's not always looked upon as being the most diverse, that we have a lot of those students in our schools and in our classrooms. And what's interesting is that there are several new studies coming out that show that these educationally marginalized students across all categories, not just race, were less connected with the remote learning that started in March than the students who do not fit into one of those categories. Yes, and I've seen national studies that describe the gap in access for marginalized populations. And, you know, we're seeing that in West Virginia, too. Most counties in our state conducted surveys to ask families about their access to devices or just the connection to the Internet. And what we found is that we have a lot of haves and have not situations in different pockets across the state. The areas where connection and access to technology are an issue are really an issue. And we see that children in those populations suffer more. That is exactly correct. And this will be the same population of students who, if we don't return to a traditional model of schooling, will be at the largest disadvantage. And in turn, we will see a widening in that achievement gap and other disparities between these students and their same age peers. Yes, and we know from our work here on the campaign that the achievement gap widens for these students. And for me, it's extremely alarming to think that these students are at a larger disadvantage when it comes to the type of remote learning that they experienced at the end of the past school year. However, there are some ideas that we can take into consideration as we begin the school reentry process. And that's whether it is in a form that is completely face-to-face -face, or whether that's a blended model or a model that is completely remote that can help us to reduce these inequities and reduce the achievement gap. And one document that has a wealth of information in it that I would like to share with our listeners today is from the Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. And it's in their guidance document on culturally responsive sustaining school reopenings that we're going to talk about. What I really like about this document is that it's broken up into many sections, so it's easy to locate specific content. But I do want to spend some time on the first section because I feel this is one of the most powerful sections in this whole document. And this first section looks at what the desired system looks like for students based on a radical re-imaging of how we do school. Basically what that means, and just as the document says, we don't want to return back to normal. 
We want to use this time as an opportunity to make things better and improve. Yes, and I love this document. I'm so excited that we get to share it with our listeners. It's important that we bring forward the lessons that we've learned during the COVID-19 pandemic to help strengthen the learning opportunities that we provide to our students. And one aspect of that improvement that the guide discusses is ensuring that we're creating an environment for our students that is welcoming, affirming, and fun. And we have to think, you know, we would be naive, really, to think that all students walk into a classroom where they feel those things and they feel welcome and supported and that they love to learn. And although so many of our students do have that wonderful experience, it just simply isn't the case for all of them. And working to re-image our schools and take those steps towards all students having that joyful and welcoming experience would make all the difference. I think the the main thing to remember in this process of re-imaging is that we have to leave behind anything that marginalizes or excludes even one of our students, whether that means omitting activities or changing parts of our curriculum. The last thing that we ever want to happen for any of our students is for them to feel like they don't belong because of something we as educators are doing in our classrooms. And some other things to consider or focus on that the document mentions in this whole process of creating a desired system for students are building relationships with families, shifting discipline to a model aimed at reconnecting students to learning, and using assessments to learn about students rather than to rank them. And then one of my favorites, embracing curricula driven by students that elevates their history and the history of their community and really represents who is actually in the classroom. I completely agree that we should ensure that the environment that we create for our students is welcoming, affirming, and fun. And I think that as we begin to think about how to create these environments, especially if we're fortunate enough to create these in a physical space, is that we need to consider how educators, students, and the other adults in the school building abruptly ended the face-to-face school year. I know from talking with a lot of adults and children that it was a traumatic experience in and of itself, not to mention all the stress and anxiety that has been associated with the pandemic and also the changes in the world around us. So for me, the very first subsection under how stakeholders should use the summer to prepare for the fall reopening on healing practices really resonated with me. And it makes a whole lot of sense to acknowledge and grieve and to heal from that trauma together by not only providing students with support, but also providing that support to teachers and parents. And I love the idea of setting the expectations that all schools reopen with one or more healing methodologies and practices in place. 
I really love that you mentioned that. I think that right now, especially in these unique times, that having those healing methodologies in place in our schools is of the utmost importance. Giving students and, like you said, teachers and staff, too, the chance to participate in mindfulness exercises, restorative circles, support groups, or other healing practices will essentially ensure that better learning takes place. And this goes back to a lot of what I discussed with you in episode nine of our podcast, that in order for students' thinking brains to be ready to learn, the emotional part of their brain has to be ready as well. And if the thinking brain and the emotional brain aren't able to work together, that emotional part of the brain takes over and students aren't able to access the logical problem-solving parts of their brain that lets them learn. So having the opportunity for students to take part in those healing practices will better help them be ready to learn and participate in the academic portions of their day. Yes, absolutely. And I am so happy that you made that connection back to our episode when we were talking about the hand model of the brain, which thinking about our episodes on trauma just made me think about another important piece that educators need to think about with school reentry. We need to take the time to educate and enlighten ourselves regarding student behavior. Many of our students are probably going to be exhibiting behaviors that are a result of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic because of the anxiety and stress that is placed on them. And more than likely, they're going to be showing those same behaviors that we see in our students who have experienced trauma. But I think we're going to see this on a much larger scale and more frequently than what we're used to. So instead of jumping straight into punishing these behaviors, we can first begin by working to understand the behaviors, along with helping students to work through these emotions and triggers. And we can do this by reestablishing and rebuilding that sense of community and trust, not only within our classrooms, but within the whole school building. So thinking back to March 13th, teachers, students, and the other adults in our school system had spent the year building relationships. Then these relationships, along with other activities that take place at the end of the year, like step-up days or transition days or graduations were disrupted. And we're not going to be starting the school year with those same relationships intact. In fact, for many of our vulnerable students, they may begin the school year with a lack of trust, additional anxiety, stress, or other sense of loss due to both the abrupt ending to the school year and trauma that they just might have faced during the school closure time. So it's going to be critical to spend those first initial days and weeks building up that trust and that sense of community with our students. Yes, I agree. Shifting discipline to that model that aims at reconnecting students to their learning rather than punishing them is going to be extremely important. And When returning to school, relationships, the social, emotional well-being, and physical health of our students, as well as our staff, is going to be the biggest priority along with learning. 
in those first weeks, there's going to be a great need to focus on time with our students and building those relationships and trust. And one of the very first things that we can do to begin this process is to celebrate an in-person space despite any restrictions that may exist. It would be very easy to let the fear and restrictions dominate that excited feeling that we typically have with returning to school. But I do feel like celebrating learning and togetherness is what's going to naturally happen when students and teachers return to their classrooms. Especially because we're realizing how different groups of students have contrasting realities. The reality for some students was that schools was physically closed in March, but they had a family member at home to help them continue to learn and grow socially, academically, and emotionally. But then unfortunately, there's a different reality for others. Not only were they not able to go to school, but they didn't have anybody at home to help them grow socially, emotionally, academically. And instead, they were left feeling lonely, maybe scared or even hungry. It's really important to come back to school and give students the opportunity to feel the wide range of emotions that we know exist and give them a venue to try to express themselves and to work through these difficult realities. Absolutely. And it's definitely not going to be an easy task. Right. It's not going to be easy. But a suggestion from this document for the first day or week of school to make it a little bit easier is to give students a space to unpack, discuss, and share these experiences. I feel like that this kind of goes back to that whole healing idea that we just discussed. We can't ignore that our students have been through this huge life-altering experience. And in order to be able to overcome any lasting fears and anxieties, they will need to be able to talk about them. It will not only help them heal personally, but it will help the whole class with establishing that sense of community and trust we were just talking about. And we know that when we share our experiences with other people through discussion, that we make deep connections with one another. Yes, absolutely. And just think, can you imagine as a young student walking into a classroom where you're typically used to sitting on the carpet with your friends or at tables, only to see desks that are spaced way more far apart than what you're typically used to with dividers on each of them while everyone has on a face mask. Obviously, that's just a hypothetical scenario, but it is one that could very well end up being a reality for a lot of our students. And I know as an educator and as a parent that just the thought of that is overwhelming for me. I say that to agree with you because It would be simple for the fear of those restrictions that are in place when schools reopen to overshadow that typical back to school excitement like we were talking about. And I think that celebrating that space despite those restrictions is going to be vital in the success of our students. And what if school buildings don't physically reopen? Finding a way to celebrate the remote classroom or building connections throughout a remote learning experience is going to be just as important, especially for those students who we've been discussing 
who are less connected through the remote learning experience back in March when schools closed. Definitely. And I'm sure that teachers are probably wondering what they need to know, think about, and do to promote cultural responsiveness when schools start up again. And the number one thing that is most important for teachers to do in order to promote cultural responsiveness during this time is to keep their own self-care at the forefront. They need to advocate for their needs and the needs of their students, as well as need to ensure there are points of connection with their families and the community. It's understandable that while social distancing measures are in place, our initial reaction is to stay apart, but students and their families are going to be looking at educators for reassurance that their children will receive the same care, love, and attention that they received before the pandemic. So essentially, students are going to be turning to teachers, parents are going to be turning to teachers, and teachers are going to be turning to other teachers. And there is no way that teachers can handle that without first making sure that they are taking care of themselves. That is exactly right. And you know, we talk a lot about self-care on this podcast, but I think that just goes to show how important we think it is. You also mentioned the need to ensure points of connection are increased with families and the community, and I think that's another crucial aspect. Communication is going to be absolutely essential in making the reentry successful. For those students who are typically marginalized, that may look like teachers getting creative with their means of communication and connecting with students and their families. Throughout this reentry process, everything from environment to content to professional learning is gonna look unlike it ever has. I think that most teachers have already come to this realization, but nonetheless, it's important to keep in mind. I think that the best way to look at it and the most positive mindset to have is just like we mentioned earlier, we don't want things to go back to normal. We want to use this time to improve and make things better than they ever have been before. That is such a great point. So many aspects of teaching are going to look differently than what we're used to. Brandy and I touched on this in a previous episode um, that was focused on summer learning loss that teachers will have to accept from the beginning of the year that their content must shift and transform. But with that comes the need to modify methods of assessing students academically and also check in with students on a social and emotional level as well. Some students are going to enter the classroom this fall with regressions, not only in academic areas, but also in their social and emotional areas as well. Teachers, will have to be more vigilant on which students are experiencing regression and which students may have a developmental disability. Because I think we're gonna find that it's gonna be really difficult at the beginning of the year to be able to notice the subtle differences in these. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that it is critical that we avoid labeling students when we begin to notice those differences. Historically in education, we do tend to focus on deficits, and when we do that, we begin to change our level of expectations for those students with deficits. 
according to research, when we lower the expectations of our students, they in turn perform at lower levels. And the same is true if we maintain high expectations for our students, then they will perform at higher levels. Lowering expectations becomes even more of an issue when labels are assigned to students based on their deficits. So if we're taking into consideration equity and cultural responsiveness during school reentry, we need to look at the assets that students bring into the classroom and maintain those high expectations in order to help accelerate our students instead of focusing on our efforts through a deficit-oriented lens and avoid assigning those labels. Right. Avoiding labels and keeping expectations high is one of the most crucial things that we need to remember as we move forward. The last thing we want to do is lower the bar and make excuses. We had challenges in March when school buildings physically closed, but what I hope is that teachers are starting to realize that when our school doors closed on March 13th, what they had to shift to immediately was not distance learning, it was pandemic teaching. Now we know a little better and we've had a little more time to prepare to make sure our students feel at least a little more comfortable in what could be a very uncomfortable reality. It's going to be a lot of work, no doubt, but that is definitely something that teachers are used to. I really think that with the right guidance and support and a positive mindset that much like they always do, our educators are going to thrive through this time of adversity and come out even better for it. I wholeheartedly agree. Like you mentioned, I think that it's safe to say that remote learning or at least some aspect of that might come into play in the upcoming school year. We've discussed a lot of things to keep in mind if we find ourselves in that situation. Yes. So as we're coming to a close on this episode, I want to thank you again for just being here today and talking to me about culturally responsive education. Thank you so much for having me. So as we're coming to a close on this episode, I want to ask you, what is one tip or piece of advice that you could give our listeners around the idea of culturally responsive teaching during school reopening? I think if I could give one piece of advice to our listeners surrounding this idea of culturally responsive teaching during these unique times and school reentry, and really for any time that we are starting the school year, it would be that it's imperative for us to keep in mind that students are going to enter our classrooms, whether in the traditional sense or remotely, at all different places academically and emotionally. I think it's so important that we use our experience and the tools available to us and the valuable relationships that we create with our students and their families to determine their needs and provide the best experience possible for all of our students. Don't forget that when it comes to providing those opportunities for students in the classroom to make those meaningful connections between what they're learning and their own backgrounds and life experiences, that the students themselves and their families are one of your most valuable resources. I really think that learning from our families and creating that partnership with them is at the foundation of culturally responsive teaching. To access all the links discussed in today's episode and for additional information, please visit our website, 
at wbde.us forward slash leaders of literacy. Click on podcast and find the show notes for episode 17. Want to learn more about being a leader of literacy? Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single installment. In the next episode, Brittany and I are going to be joined with John Lydon. John is the Director of Instruction at Polaris Charter Academy, a K-8 school in Chicago. And he is going to be talking with us further about culturally responsive education. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.